Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the A dog endures etching the night, death, and the devil by Marco de Nevi. 1966, translated by Alberto Manguel. The knight, as we all know, is back from the war. The Seven Years' War, the Thirty Years' War, the War of the Roses, the War of the Three Henrys, a dynastic or religious war, or a gallant war, in the Palatinate, in the Netherlands, in Bohemia, no matter where, no matter when, all wars are fragments of a single war. All wars make up the nameless war, simply the war, the war. So that although the knight returns from travelling through a fragment of the war, it is as if he had journeyed through all wars and all the war. Because all wars, even if they seem different when seen from close to, seen from a distance, only repeat the same infamies and the same clamour. So. Let us not be scrupulous about names or dates. Let us not worry if out of the Plantagenets and the Hohenstaufen we make one wayward family, if we mix lansquenets with grenadiers, crossbowmen with archers, or if we muddle our geography and mix cities with cities, castles with castles, towers with towers. And so returning to the night, we were saying that, at last, he is back from the war back from a link in the chain of war, believing the war to be the very last link, not knowing that the chain is endless, or that it has an end but being circular, that time makes it turn as if it were endless. For he left young and brave, and war returns him old, wizened, and bald. Although this is nothing new, war lacks imagination and repeats its tricks. So the knight, like all knights who have been through a war without falling to death's trap, is unshaven, grimy, smelling of sweat, blood and filth, his armpits infested with fleas, a rash burning the insides of his thighs, coughing greenish phlegm marbled with scarlet threads, speaking in a voice made harsh by frost, fire, hard-drinking oaths, cries of terror, and courage. He can no longer utter two words without swearing. He has forgotten the florid language of his childhood when he served as a page at the court of some margrave or archbishop. He has forgotten the beautiful manners and graceful bows with which he charmed the ladies, because now he no longer asks women for love. He asks them for wine, food, a bed, and while his soldiers rape the girls, he drinks alone, in silence, until the soldiers come back yawning, and then he slams his hand on the table and curses. He curses the little kings fleeing pale and tattered on panting horses, those kings who will return in triumph as soon as the battle is over, dressed in cloth of gold, under a golden canopy, in the midst of an army of penance and banners. He curses the popes, dressed in ermine, who from the height of their gestatorial chairs sprinkle holy water 
on the scarlet seals of alliances and coalitions. He curses the emperor whom he once saw walking between spears erect as phalluses at the sight of that damsel of war, and the knight jumps to his feet, knocks over his chair, knocks over the table, the glasses and the jug of wine. A violent quarrel flares up. The tavern, or whatever, is burnt to the ground, the innkeeper beaten, and the troop led by the knight rides on once more. And now it passes through a forest in the moonlight, but the knight no longer curses, no longer makes a sound. He rides on, silent, his eyes staring deep into the night, and one by one the soldiers stop talking. They fall asleep in their saddles, each dreaming alone, with his head fallen on his breastplate, one hearing perhaps a distant music, the music of his childhood in the village in the Duchy of Milan or in Catalonia, while another hears voices which call to him, the voice of his mother, the voice of his wife or his sweetheart, and another cries out and awakens with a start. But the night doesn't stop. He doesn't turn to see who cried, as if the cry were the cry of a bird in the wood. He rides on, with his eyes fixed upon the darkness, the moon polishing his armour, and the soldier behind him, the one nearest to him, the one carrying a tattered flag burnt by gunpowder, a flag now hanging over the rump of his horse like a filthy rag. That soldier, a blond youth, very much like a minstrel, suddenly has a strange thought. He thinks that perhaps the knight's armour is riding empty, that the knight has vanished, and all that is left is the armour, like a hollow iron doll, or that perhaps the armour has overpowered the knight, sucked him up like a sponge, sucked his blood, crushed his bones, and now is an empty, fleshless shell riding on. And he imagines this because he has never seen the knight without his armour and his spear, without his greaves and his gauntlets that point to the north of war, without his howling helmet, beneath which lies a tangle of hair. But hair that perhaps belongs to a faceless beard, hair that is perhaps the helmet's stuffing, perhaps the whole armour is stuffed with hair. And the thought makes the blonde soldier laugh, because it occurs to him that the knight may have dried up in his armour a long time ago, that the armour became empty a long time ago, and they, the soldiers, never learnt the truth, and they, the soldiers, have tramped behind this empty armour from battle to battle, defying death, in the firm belief that the knight would protect them from death. And as the blonde standard-bearer laughs, like a sleepwalker or a drunkard, the knight hoists himself on the edge of his stirrups and utters a curse, as if guessing the reason for the standard-bearer's laughter, trying to show him that deep down, inside the armour, he is still alive. Or maybe, to rebuke him for dreaming, 
and the blond soldier shrinks in fright until he realizes that the knight has not even woken, that he isn't cursing because of his laughter, but because the trees in the forest, which up to that moment seemed frozen under the moon and under the winter snow, have suddenly burst into flower and are covered with fruit, which is to say, even though the image is old, and you have all understood, that the trees have flowered with the blossoms that the heat of war brings forth in all four seasons, in good and in bad weather, in fertile lands as in wastelands, that the trees have been covered with that fruit which is always in season, always ripe for plucking or picking. I mean the enemy. I mean the unquenchable enemy who waits patiently, stubbornly, hidden in the shadow, blurred by the fog and the smoke. And then the slumbering horses turn in a flash. But all this has already happened. All this is over now. And the knight has returned to his castle without the clashing of metal of horses and of men that followed him in his journey through one of the provinces of war. He has left behind the shouting. He has freed himself forever from the soggy camps, the plundering, the ambushes, from hunger, terror, lack of sleep. He has kept nothing of the war, except his horse, his panoply, his spear with the fox skin at one end to stop the blood from dripping down and soaking his hand. He has kept the smell of sweat and filth, the lice, the rash, the exhaustion, the feebleness, old age and memories, memories out of the loud tableau of war. Like that youth, fallen on the grass, face skywards, sinking both his legs up to his knee in an uncaring river, the Rhine, the Tajo, the Arno, and the water passing by the body, lifting the legs, softening and tearing at them, until it carries them downstream, transformed into raveled threads, first crimson, then pink, finally grey and ochre, or like those ten gallows in the dark and empty square, a body hanging from each one, ten dangling objects with their tongues out, and the wind made music with the bodies, while in the steeple a bell sounded one same hour out of time, or like the old man, crouched to empty his bowels on the hard ground covered in frost, and suddenly collapsing over a blossom of blood and feces, the ancient rose of dysentery, or like that lofty tower, square and built of bricks, rising against a row of cypresses, the jet of burning pitch spewing from one of the battlements, falling on the knights dressed in white tunics with a red cross on their chests, on the knights who were all so refined and beautiful, and who had attended mass only a short while before, a mass conducted by an archbishop, studded with precious stones, and the black crater dug by the boiling pitch, the hole smoking and crackling like a pan on the fire, until he, our knight, became aware of a sweetish smell, a smell of frying and burnt cloth, and felt a sting, and saw 
that a little piece of meat had landed on his hand, a little piece of flesh from one of those knights who a short while before had heard mass and commended themselves to God, because that is what the war had been for him, though perhaps for the little kings it had been something else, and something else again for the popes and the emperors, perhaps a game of chess played at a distance, each of them locked up in a city, in a fortress, in a palace, until the game is over, and they come out and meet and shake hands like good sportsmen and split their share of harvested land. But now the knight has jumped off the chessboard of popes and emperors. Now he returns to his castle, to his wife, whom he left young, and whom he expects to find as young as when he left her, to the sumptuously laden table and the warm, well-made bed, to the falcon that used to perch on his gloved fist on the morning of the hunt, to the lute he once plucked, singing at a court in Provence or Sicily the roundelays of Chino de Pistoia, to the castle where he will at last cast off his armour like a dried scab, where he will take off his helmet like an alien head that could do nothing but swear and seek the track of the enemy's army. He returns to his castle, where the little kings whom he saved from the ignominy of defeat will cover him with honours where the Pope and the Emperor, who move the pieces on the chessboard of war, will make him Duke or Count Palatine. And then, turning a bend in the road, he sees upon an untouched hill his untouched castle. He sees around it the fields and the peasants bent over the soil. He sees a dog, a domestic dog, a stray dog belonging to no one, a dog running among the stones, stopping here and there to sniff the traces of other dogs. And confronted with the idyllic picture of the castle, the peasants and the dog, the knight thinks that just as he cannot grasp the true key to war held fast in the hands of popes and emperors and furiously coveted by little kings, these peasants bent over their furrows are denied the knowledge of the terrible task of war which has been his for so long. Because for these peasants, war will have been a blurred rumour, the glow of a fire in the distance, the marching of troops down the road. And as for the dog, the knight thinks, it did not even know there was a war. It did not even know there was plunder and murder, blessed by the Pope, an emperor who made spears rise like phalluses, it would have carried on eating, sleeping, coupling with other dogs and ignoring the fact that far away, where the knight was fighting, the frontiers were being undone, in order to be done up again in another pattern. Indeed, the dog would never know that a vicar of Christ was being dragged bleeding through the streets, or that an emperor was kneeling day and night outside a door that never opened. It would never know that the flower of Christendom had been fried alive in pitch and oil, and that a chime of hanged men toiled the hours on a dark and empty square. Because for the dog, the thunder of war made the same terrible noise as the thunder of a storm, and had the dog seen the damsel of war, it would have barked at her, 
as it would bark at a stranger, or wagged its tail if it had found her friendly, or been given some food. And now, the knight feels proud of being a knight, of having been one of the pieces on the chessboard of war, of belonging to history, even though his name will not appear in history, even though only the names of the popes and emperors will appear in the annals of history, and in smaller letters, the names of the little kings. And the knight feels sorry for the peasants, who do not even belong to history, and amazed at the dog, contemporary of popes and emperors, who will never know there have been popes and emperors, who will never even know there have been knights. He feels a kind of awe seeing this dog who comes to greet him, as it would come to greet a peasant or an emperor, without distinguishing one from the other, who comes to greet him without suspecting the disasters and heroic deeds that girdle his armour, and following his thought, following this train of thought that begins with the dog, the knight thinks that perhaps the last links in the chain are not the popes or the emperors, because in the same way that the dog ignores what the peasants know, in the same way that the peasants ignore what the knight knows, and in the same way that the knight ignores what the little kings know, and the little kings what the popes and emperors know, in the same way the popes and the emperors ignore what only God knows as a whole, and in the perfection of truth. And thinking this of war, believing that for God too, war is something different from that which popes and emperors see, fills the knight with hope, hope that in God's mind, history will include the knight's name, hope that if the pope and the emperor, masters of the game of war, will make him, the knight, a duke or a count, in recognition of his bravery, then God, the master of the game of popes and emperors, will absolve him of the murders, the rapes and the plunders, in recognition of his suffering, his hunger and his lack of sleep, and will receive him in paradise. And this hope makes him smile. It comforts him and makes the past ills of the war seem worthwhile, when all of a sudden, just as hope is comforting the knight and making him smile, the dog, running to meet him, stops in its tracks in front of a wall, digs its paws into the ground, its hackles rise, its jaws part in a snarl, and it bears its fangs and starts to howl mournfully. But the knight attributes its behaviour to some insignificant circumstance. He attributes it to the fact that the dog doesn't know him and is frightened of the horse or the armour or the spear with the fox's tail hanging from one end. It's hardly surprising that this peasant's dog should be frightened of a knight dressed in iron and of a horse adorned with a head stall and snaffle, so the knight pays no attention to the dog's behaviour and follows the road that leads to the hill on top of which stands his castle and the hoofs of his horse are about to trample the dog but it jumps to one side at the last minute and continues to howl, continues to whimper, and bears its teeth. While the knight remembers again his young wife, his falcon, and his love lute, and has forgotten about the dog, the dog now left behind him, like the war. And what the knight will never know is that the dog has smelt on the knight's armour, 
the stench of death and hell. Because the dog already knows what the night does not know. It knows that in the night's groin a pustule has begun to distill the juices of the plague, and the death and the devil are waiting for the night at the foot of the hill to take him with them. Because if the night could read what I now write, he would perhaps think, following an analogous train of thought but in reverse, he would think that just as the dog stopped there where he rides on, so knights perhaps stop there where popes and emperors ride on, and perhaps therefore the popes and emperors will ignore his heroic deeds and not make him a duke or a count. He would think that the war of knights is for popes and emperors, like the stench of death and the devil that only dogs can smell. And still, within the circle of this reasoning, the knight would think that perhaps popes and emperors stop there where God rides on, that perhaps they play a game of chess, which God does not take into account. I mean, which God does not watch. Perhaps God does not even see their chessboard and the sacrifice of the pieces serves no purpose in God's eyes, and the night will not be absolved of his sins, nor admitted into paradise. I mean that if the night reasoned in this manner, he would think that perhaps for God the realities that trap men form a web which cannot trap God, in the same way that the night had passed through without seeing the web in which the dog became entangled even though the web was woven for the night and not for the dog, even though the prayers, the hopes and sufferings of men are woven for God, but the night will never read what I now write. And he reaches the bottom of the hill, happy with the hope that his valour has woven a web that will trap the fly pope, the fly emperor, happy with the hope that popes and emperors have woven another web that will trap the fly god, while down here, on the road, the dog, who confuses the thunder of war with the thunder of a storm, continues to wage another, vaster war, in which the night confuses the barking of death with the barking of a dog. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies. That was A Dog Endures Etching the Night, Death and the Devil. So let's say something about the etching and Albrecht Dürer. So Albrecht Dürer was born in Nuremberg, which was a free imperial city of the Holy Roman Empire in those days, in 1471. He died aged 58, also in Nuremberg. He was a famous printmaker in his time and travelled across Europe, particularly to Italy, where he was in touch with lots of the artists there. His work, and particularly his most famous work, consists of engravings and woodcuts, and The Night, Death and the Devil, which he called simply The Night, was one of a series of three very famous engravings that deal with themes of Christian morality. So the engraving shows an armoured knight on a horse who's leading another horse, a pack horse presumably, through the countryside, and he, he's flanked by a rotting corpse holding an hourglass, which is presumably like the memento mori we see on gravestones, to remind us that our time, and remind the knight particularly, that his time 
is fleeting, despite his fame, despite his courage, that he will die and become a rotting corpse. And then there's the devil behind him, who presumably symbolises temptation. So the knight, the chivalrous Christian knight, may be tempted from his um, noble path and noble duties by the temptations of the devil. And underneath is a dog, a lowly dog. And on the hill is a fortress, which is said to represent the fortress of Christian virtue. So this story that we've just heard, based on the dog in uh, Dura's Etching, The Night, Death and the Devil, was written by Marco de Nevi, who was uh, an Argentinian, born in 1922 in the town of Sainz Peña, which was a suburb, which is a suburb of Buenos Aires in Argentina. He died in Buenos Aires in 1998. He initially studied law, but went to work in an insurance office in his spare time. You can just imagine him. He was a bit like Kafka and Einstein. Wrote his book, his first novel. And he continued to write until he was, um, when he was 46, he gave up insurance and became a full-time writer. And he was very successful. And he won several prizes. And uh, some of his movies were made into um, Spanish language and English language films. So. This story was translated by Alberto Manguel, who was also an, uh, well, I don't know what the word is, you know, Angelinos for Los Angeles. There must be a word for people from Buenos Aires. But um, anyway, he was, Alberto Manguel was from there and was born in Argentina, lived in the 70s in Paris and London, moved to Canada. I think he's a Canadian citizen. He was married to a woman and then divorced this woman and then uh, his partner was a man. When he was a young man, he worked in a bookshop in Buenos Aires and he met, as a claim to fame, oh, he's, he's pretty famous himself, but he met um, Jorge Luis Borges, who is a fantastic writer, though I doubt we'll ever do any of his work on the Classic Ghost Stories podcast, but I do like him. Yeah, so Alberto is a translator. He's also an editor, an essayist and a, and a writer of fiction and non-fiction in his own right. So let me say something about my interpretation of the story which I haven't been able to find any reviews of it in, that I can read anyway. I haven't even found any in Spanish, which I could possibly pick my way through. So this is what, my, what I think about it. So I think it's a really great Gothic story. You may know I love Gothic stuff. And it can, the main story is that a knight is returning from the wars. And um, Denevi makes the point, all wars are the same. You know, when, when, when you're up close, they look different. But when you... The same uh, atrocities happen, the same banalities. War has no imagination, so it's played out. So it doesn't really matter if we mix up the wars or the cities or the geographies, because it's all basically the same. And this man who was, you know, a page boy in his youth and had manners and knew dances and courteous language, has been coarsened by a life at war, and all he can do is swear and drink now. Uh, and he's been coarsened by his life, and he's covered in fleas and all sorts of stuff. So the story is really about him returning home. And he has this idyllic picture that he's going to return home to his beautiful wife and his lovely castle and his falcon and his lute and have a bit of downtime, a bit of me time. But as we see, that isn't going to be the case. We have a, a very nice little vignette, a little interlude, a sketch, whereby the, 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 the band of warriors returning are travelling through some very gothic forests, which are in in fruit, with the fruit of what the fruits of war, which I think is a fantastic image, beautiful, fantastical actually, you know, like a real dark fantasy. Uh, and the minstrel suddenly conceives that maybe the knight whom he has never seen take his armor off is not in the armor that they have been led all the way and, and, and put their faith in 
an empty suit of armour. But in fact, the knight is there. He's full, the armour's full of hair, which is another interesting image. And then we get back to the main journey. And the way it's written is we're not sure whether it's the omniscient narrator telling us who knows everything or whether it's the knight thinking these sins out. So Dinevi makes a point again that um, wars are pointless. They're just games of chess played by emperors and little kings. A very denigrating term, little kings and popes. And they send their armies out and they themselves are locked up in palaces. And when all the dying is done and the killing's done, they come out and they, uh, they reckon who's won the battle and they work out who's got what territory and what, you know, it's all very pointless. And we are told that the knight's name will not go down in history, just these petty kings. And the implication is that they actually, it's not the way it should be because they didn't really do anything. They were pretty lacking in virtue, really. Unlike the knight, who at least is brave, courageous, of course. And then the knight's musings change and he starts to think, well, maybe I'll be honoured by one of these little kings. I'll become a, a count or a duke and I'll get some land. I guess the point is this. If he doesn't, his life has been a complete waste, complete waste. So maybe if he gets an honour, that will kind of make up for it. And he talks about how the knights try, everybody tries to snare a higher power. And he talks about, again, a great image of cobwebs to snare the fly pope, the fly, the fly kings, you know. And they themselves build their own cobwebs to, to snare God and get God's blessing and um, gifts, I suppose, from their work. So they, everybody's trying to snare, play a clever trick to snare the next level by their actions and thus get something for what they've done. The knight's coming home, and he sees the peasants. And to the peasants, war is just noise, you know. It's just something's troops walking down. It isn't really relevant for them, because they just dig the ground and grow the crops, actually, which you could argue is a, a more worthwhile thing to do. And then he sees the dog. And the dog is even below the peasants. So this is a story about hierarchies, very much about hierarchies, with God at the top, popes, Emperors, little kings, knight, peasants, dog. And the dog is at the bottom. So the dog, isn't, the dog is not really considered by the knight, but in fact it all turns on the fact that here's a knight going home, looking forward to some well-earned reward for his efforts with his wife and his lute and his falcon. And in fact, the lowest of them all, the dog, knows something that the knight doesn't know. It's also hinted that the wars, the the dog and the peasants are indifferent to the wars, which they don't understand. It's also hinted that God might be the same, that all these things fought in his name are actually, he's totally oblivious of them. He doesn't give a fig for them. But the dog going to the dog, the dog knows that the knight is carrying the Black Death. So not only will the knight not get to earn any reward or enjoy any pleasure, he's probably going to kill everybody who he goes back to his wife and all the ones he's been looking forward to seeing again. So there we are. It's yeah, a very cheery story of death and doom and plague, which we're all very familiar with these days. So, yeah, but it, it is in its essence like the Gothic engraving of Dura because it's a very Gothic, you know, armoured knights and all that. It's just so... And there was a, a thing going on at that time when this was written you think of people, the Italian writer Italo Calvino, and he, he does, you know, great, quite avant-garde stories. I mean, you know, so um, the Argentinians are pretty good at avant-garde, like Luis uh, Borges, like we talked about, is that that's his thing, isn't it? You know, the surreal avant-garde. And um, 
Italo Calvino does, um, who's Italian, not Argentinian, but he does the, um, if on a winter's night, a traveller and the castle of cross destinies and all these kind of things. And there, there, there's one with the um, tarot cards on the front and I think that's got a knight in it. So it, it reminded me of that, quite gothic and coming from a similar period. So, yes, pretty good. Now, Alberto Manguel, in the, in the um, version of this I got on the internet, has something to say about how, how this came about, how this story came about. And this is Alberto Manguel, not me, translated. So he says, in 1966, I was working for Galerna, a small publishing company in Buenos Aires. I had almost total freedom and full of enthusiasm. I set up a short and ultimately unsuccessful series called Variations on a Theme. The idea was to choose one subject per volume. The subject might be anything, a newspaper clipping, a painting, and offer it to a dozen writers who would then make their own variations on that given theme. For one of the volumes I chose, Dürer's engraving, The Night, Death and the Devil. Among the authors I asked to write on the theme was Marco Denevi. So Manguel says that Denevi had become famous in Argentina through two books, the superb detective novel, badly translated into English as Rose at 10 o'clock, and a novella, Secret Ceremony, which won Life magazine's prize for the best Latin American story in 1960, and which was then, Manguel says, completely changed by a Joseph Lucy gone haywire in his terrible film of the same name. So basically he asked Denevi to write this story, and Denevi called him back, Manguel, barely a day later and said that, quote, my order was ready. I went to his office to collect it. He was then working as an insurance broker, dressed in impeccable black, and I read the typewritten pages on the bus on my way back home. I remember the thrill of the first lines, the enjoyment of the virtuoso performance that revealed itself almost immediately, the happiness of the last fifty words that round up the story like a symphonic finale. In all these years, my enthusiasm for this subtle, fantastic tale has not waned. There you go. So that's it. I really enjoyed, I should say, the, the, it was recommended to me, this story. Most of the stories I'm getting that I'm reading these days are actually listener, stroke viewer recommendations. And this story was recommended by Anne Durant, who is uh, a patron of the podcast Stroke YouTube, Stroke Tony Walker, Stroke, all these things. Did you ever see that Stroke thing, Slash, I suppose it was? Did you ever see uh, Zoolander? I really liked that film. It made me laugh a lot. Um, and you could be an actor slash model. <laughs> I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm that either way. But but there we are. But that made me laugh. Okay, so yeah, a slight digression there. Yeah, Anne Durant recommended that. I've got various others. As I say, most of the stories are recommendations these days, and that kind of is great. But it adds to my list, and I'm like, oh my god, I've got so many of these stories to do. I'm never going to come to an end of these stories. I'm never ever ever. I was reading another book by a guy called Gruber, which was recommended by Ali Abdal. Now, if you follow any YouTube people, Ali, Ali Abdal's one of my heroes. And even though he's just a young man, he's very infectiously nice. And he's a productivity guru. And he recommended this book uh, by um, Gerber rather, not Gruber, and um, about the entrepreneurial myth. And he talks about the technician, the three three kinds of people go into business and one of them is a technician. And the technician is somebody who likes doing things, doesn't like meetings, doesn't like managing, just likes producing. So it can be a cake baker or a, a printmaker or, you know, or in my case, a storyteller. 
And the trouble with the technician is they just work till they drop. So there's always, I'm going to do another one. I'm going to do another one. I'm going to make another pie. I'm going to write another story. So that's, I've got to be conscious of that because I don't want to drop um, anywhere, actually. So, yeah. So other news. Mm. Well, it's a, it, we, it's a, we are moving forward on a general line. The podcast stroke, YouTube stroke, classic ghost stories thing, podcast. One thing I've learned is if you keep producing episodes, you get listeners. Funny that. And the same is true for YouTube. If the more videos are put out, the more, more views you get and the more it grows. But it's a bit of a hamster wheel. So um, I've, I've got to be mindful of that anyway. Otherwise, the weather here at the end of May, it's been a beautiful day today, but it has been otherwise pretty cold and rainy. But today I had a lovely walk through the park and I was looking at all the trees and I saw all, all the trees in blossom and there were some elms back, which was nice because a lot of the elms, most of the elms in the UK died from the 1970s due to Dutch elm disease. But there was quite a few back now. Um, amongst the oaks and the ash and all of those lovely, lovely trees. I don't know what that's got to do with podcasts, but I just kind of said it. It was nice. It was very, very nice. Okay. So, oh yeah. So on YouTube, I'm moving toward, more towards video making. So I'm actually using video. I'm, I'm doing courses on it. Um, I'm a long way off being any good. I have launched memberships on YouTube, which is at the, at the suggestion of YouTube, because I always do what everybody tells me. And YouTube said, do memberships. So I've got my daughter, Imogen. And I must mention my daughter, Catherine, who is a teacher. So they're twins, um, born eight minutes apart. And uh, I mustn't forget Catherine, because I love them both to bits. And, um, but, but Imogen is a very talented artist, and Catherine is a very talented, wonderful teacher. So there we are. But Imogen has done these emojis, and um, she's doing a badge series of badges for the memberships and I've done some videos, exclusive videos. So YouTube says I must talk about these and then I can take that off on the checklist of things to do about memberships. So if you're interested in, there's a million ways to support me now. I'm actually spoiled for choice. And one of the actual really confusing issues is, so somebody contacts me and is it via Facebook? Is it via Patreon? Is it via Substack? Is it on YouTube? Is it via Apple reviews? That's much harder to have a, a, a dialogue but, you know, and if it is by Facebook, is it to Tony Walker? Is it to the classic ghost stories? And sometimes I know people have asked me a question and I, I can't actually find it. So if you're one of those people, I apologize. One of these days I'm going to rationalize everything. What am I going to say? I'm, I'm in a bit of a chatty mood tonight. So things, a thing that riled me is this. I don't mind people, I honestly don't mind people falling asleep <laughs> in these podcasts. I do sleep stories, you know, and if you want to fall asleep, listen to those, because these take a lot of work, and I, but I don't mind people falling asleep, really. But what I don't like is when they complain that the commentary at the end woke them up. You know, this is not intended as a sleep story. It's like, it's like blaming a screwdriver for not being a hammer. You know, it's not intended to put you to sleep. If it does and you're happy with that, that's cool. But if it doesn't, don't complain that it doesn't because it wasn't meant to. All right? There we are. Ooh, a bit tetchy. Never mind. Okay, well, it is it's looking like a lovely evening. And the, the nice thing about being at this latitude is we get lovely long summer evenings. And this is looking to... Sh and there's going to be a beautiful sunset soon. 
with the sun sinking gently over Scotland, over Dumfries and Galloway, which is very, very pretty. Okay, anyway, even I come to the end of my ramble sometime. Peace. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?